Hello and welcome to episode number 50 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and in this episode we're talking about a new book that's put a lot of focus on ADHD and the way it's diagnosed and treated in the United States. It's called ADHD Nation, Children, Doctors, Big Pharma, and the Making of an American Epidemic. Our guest on this episode is the book's author, Alan Schwarz, who's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated national correspondent for the New York Times. Alan Schwarz is best known for writing more than 100 articles that expose the seriousness of concussions among football players of all ages. Since then, Mr. Schwarz has begun investigating ADHD diagnosis and medications, writing a new series of articles on the subject that led to the publication of this book. I started off the interview by asking him to talk about his background in investigative reporting and how he decided to write about ADHD. Well, uh, believe it or not, I had been a sports writer for my entire career, uh, from 1990, I guess, uh, until about 2007. I'd been a baseball writer only. uh, Hmm. But then I began a series of articles on football players and the effects of repeated uh, concussions and other head trauma. Mm. And I was really the guy who drove that story uh, nationally, journalistically, uh, from 2007 through 2010 or 11. And I, I got a little tired of it and wanted to get out of sports for a little while. And because I had heard that some kids under tremendous academic pressure in high school high school pressure, SATs, college applications, exams, things like that, were not only abusing Adderall uh, or ADHD-type drugs, but also snorting it in order to uh, try to accomplish everything that adults are asking them to do in high school. I was just, I was just horrified. Wow, and yeah. I wanted to learn more about it, and, and I, it began a series of articles that I did in The Times on ADHD, uh, on the mishandling of the diagnosis and the medications, and I ended up having so much material, I, I made it into a book. Wow, wow, yeah, snorting, geez, that's, <laughs> I know you mentioned that in the book, too, and uh, we'll probably get into that in a little bit in the interview, but, you know, one thing, I, I read through the whole book, and I want to say it's really very balanced. I mean, this isn't about trying to convince people that ADHD is not a real disorder, but you also don't mince any words about saying that there's a major problem with overdiagnosis of ADD, ADHD. Rather, um, What are the actual numbers, and how do they get compiled, as far as that goes? your noticing uh, how balanced it at least attempted to be, and I like to think succeeded in being. Most people want to see it either as anti-psychiatry or, uh, you know, just muckraking journalism or or goodness knows what. Um, what, The way that the numbers work is the CDC, uh, the United States uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, does a survey, a phone survey, every three or four years about uh, children's health. They call parents or or primary caregivers, I guess, uh, and speak to about 100,000. So it's a lot. It's got a very big denominator. Mm -hmm. And and talk about all sorts of different health issues that their children may face, uh, diabetes, uh, you know, lung problems, you know, pneumonia. Has your child ever had pneumonia? Uh, is your child, does your child have asthma, things like that. Has, have they been diagnosed with this by a medical provider? One of the questions they ask, or one of the categories, is, uh, you know, uh, psychiatric conditions, learning disabilities. And one of the questions, not surprisingly, 
uh, is, has your child been told by a medical provider that he or she has ADHD mm-hmm. or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? And uh, the last time that the survey was compiled, 11% of current children had been diagnosed with ADHD. Now, one could say that there's a difference between uh, being diagnosed and having a parent who says the child has been diagnosed, and a lot of, AD, a lot of the ADHD lobby likes to seize upon that inherent difference. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is, is that the, the survey has been validated all over the place, and while, of course, sometimes the parent gets it wrong, they don't get it wrong often enough one time, I mean, in one way or another, as to throw off the ultimate figures in any meaningful way. And so 11% of children living at that time had already been diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the numbers in a different way, and absolutely accurate, but nonetheless longitudinal way, uh, what you get is that 15% of American children get diagnosed with ADHD. 20% of all boys in the United States leave high school with a diagnosis of ADHD. Hmm. And it's, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, the official definition of, you know, regardless of one's personal opinions as to how many children do or do not, okay, or what feels like it makes sense, I mean, the American Psychiatric Association itself, in its official definition and diagnostic manual, telling doctors across the world in some ways what ADHD is and how it should be diagnosed and how it's different from other things. And its official manual says, and I quote, that population surveys suggest that ADHD occurs in most cultures in in about 5% of children. And okay, fine. We'll use that as a benchmark, 5%. And, hey, look, we, real, we live in the real world. Maybe it's going to be more than 5%, okay? We all get it. We're all grown-ups around here. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry, but 15% is a heck of a lot more than 5%. And it's millions of children being told there's something wrong with your brain. I mean, I'm sorry. That's what people are saying. Right. <laughs> you know, there's something off with your thinking processes or behavioral uh, control uh, when there isn't. Now, the child may very well and usually will have other problems. They might have a sleep disorder. They might have a different type of learning disability. They may have, they may be getting bullied at school, uh, trauma in the home, uh, lack of exercise. And these all can be serious things that affect children in serious ways. The problem is, is that ADHD diagnosis and medication, which is what usually follows, uh, are not the right antidotes for it. And so regardless of the, the cost of mislabeling a child and mismedicating them at times, uh, you have the fact that their true underlying problems are being either ignored or perhaps even exacerbated. And I don't understand why, anyone, why, why so many people seem to cringe at the idea of, of improving upon this. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there are a lot of ADHD diagnostic success stories, and a lot of kids who have been on medication benefit from them. Of course, I'm not denying that, but we must do a better job in distinguishing which children truly fit the construct of ADHD 
and and which don't and how to help them. Yeah, and those <laughs> end of interview. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, well, mic drop. Mic drop. Right. On that one. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's true because uh, when when you read the numbers and the way you have them presented in the book and you go over these numbers very thoroughly and very detailed, um, it is true that more than double the amount of kids who are supposed to be diagnosed with ADHD are being diagnosed. And so that's uh, several million. And, uh, yeah, I, I fully agree with you that it seems like that's a little bit out of outrageous, at least. Well, I mean, I, I, I want people to just acknowledge that it's true. Mm-hmm. And, look, if this is what we want for our children, if we want to, you know, tell millions of them that they have a psychiatric condition, uh, and that's what it is. It's in the um, you know, you know, the diagnostic manual of mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we want to do that and give them these, you know, what are pretty powerful medications, uh, fine. It's none of my business. Mm-hmm. It really isn't. But what I demand is that people at least acknowledge that it's true. What they want to do about it is their problem. Right. I, I don't mean to sound callous, but I'm not an advocate other than I'm an advocate for making sense and for acknowledging what's staring us right in the face. Right, right. The elephant in the room, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, now the, it's uh, what I really like about the book, too, is that you don't just do a numbers book here. This is you'd go into the complete history of ADHD as far back as a couple hundred years ago, but more recently, in the last uh, 50 years, there has been a real effort to understand ADHD and figure out how to diagnose it. And one of the people you profile in the book is uh, Dr. Keith Connors, who many say is the father of ADHD. Can you go into his background and how important his role was in the diagnostic process of ADHD? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the the idea of attention or inattention or hyperactivity being a, a medical condition really began in the earliest part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was thought to be some form of a brain damage through the 50s and, and into the 1960s. But as psychiatry began to evolve and psychopharmacology began to evolve, uh, you had a different generation of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists entertaining different types of theories about why, in this case, children uh, it, I mean, it, it, obviously, adults can have ADHD, too, but at the time, it was confined to children, the thought process. Um, so Keith Connors was a Rhodes Scholar from the University of Chicago who ended up at Johns Hopkins University in, uh, I guess it was late 59 or 1960, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was somebody who, who liked to think outside the traditional box. He was not a Freudian. Uh, and he liked performing actual science and experiments in order to determine the, what, what data emerge and what we can learn from it. And so he ended up doing the first randomized controlled trials of what we now call Ritalin uh, on, within children, in hyperactive, difficult children. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the results were, were excellent. The children paid attention better. They were less hyperactive. They had more self-control. They could concentrate better. And they were less impulsive. And this is a remarkable thing 
uh, you know, for, for children who couldn't receive an education uh, or, you know, struggled uh, or struggled to have a, a, a reasonably normal home life because of their behavioral issues and educational issues, um, this, was a, this could be a wonderful thing. And he not only made this, uh, discovery is a little strong, but nonetheless I identified the potential benefits of this new drug uh, that had been for adults. Uh, you know, he set into motion and, and certainly fueled and, and evangelized himself the concept of the diagnosis that, that was en- ended up kind of called minimal brain dysfunction. Basically, there's some sort of dysfunction there. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what it is. We know it's not severe, okay? It's right. not schizophrenia or, 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 or anything like that. But there's something going on. We're not sure exactly what it is. You know, it's very Buffalo Springfield. Right. And um, <laughs> who, who got that reference? Anyway, hmm, I did. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was 1968. Right, right? yeah. Uh, Stephen Stills, maybe he had ADHD, too. (laughs) Uh, So the point is um, that he helped define which drugs would uh, provide these types of benefits in certain types of children. He devised a symptom rating scale uh, that would allow doctors, himself for that matter, but other doctors to rate to, to, to kind of evaluate children in like 50 to 60 behavioral categories um, and allow people to get a, a, more, a more standardized clinical picture mm-hmm. so as to, you know, to try to make sure that a child who really should have this diagnosis can, can be identified mm-hmm. or the child who has different types of problems can be identified and perhaps helped as, as something else. But, Dr. Connors really was the pioneer in the use of Ritalin and other medications in children. He was not a Dr. Frankenstein, mm-hmm. okay? He was not, he, he, you know, he just said, hey, look, this can provide great benefits when used appropriately. And he spent his career um, looking at ADHD and, and other conditions. But, but nonetheless, ADHD is the one, you know, which with which he will always be identified, right. uh, you know, trying to find these children and help them. Yeah. Now, he, uh, you talk about the, uh, the diagnostic uh, paper that he came up with, and it's been referred to as the Connors scale. And I think a lot of parents whose children are getting help for ADHD will recognize that scale immediately because it's the one that we are required to send to our kids' teachers and have them uh, circle it. And uh, one of the things about the Connors scale that always uh, – made me wonder about it is that it, the the only answers that are allowed on it are not at all just a little pretty much and very much you know and it seems like the desire when they designed it was that there's child either absolutely had ADHD or absolutely did not it's like there's no middle ground there at all was that uh was there any reason is given as to why uh well, some of the time well, or something like that was not allowed I'll be honest with you, John. I disagree with uh, with your outlook on mm. that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I agree that scales of that nature can be misused. Mm-hmm. Okay, particularly when they're boiled down into eighteen or six questions. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which which a lot of them now are. Mm-hmm. However, when when Keith, when Dr. Connors did his. There were like 65, something like that, 55 oh. to 
65 different categories. Oh, wow. And there was a lot of science behind which clusters of answers would give a clinician hints as to what might be going on. It was not supposed, it was not a diagnostic sort of divining rod. Ah. It was used for the doctor, the, the, the thoughtful doctor, to get a, like I said, more standardized clinical picture of the child to, to, to see what patterns might develop and to, to, to help spur, you know, ideas. It was not, you know, hey, the kid scored, you know, 36. That's over the threshold, so he has ADHD. I mean, this was a very, this was a very um, statistically uh, calibrated and and uh, validated tool. Ah. That unfortunately, when it got out into the wild mm-hmm. and into the real world, <laughs> doctors did start taking it, whittling it down, using only certain portions of it. And then adding up the numbers and saying, well, you know, I guess the kid has ADHD. Now, you know, I think that we need to look at, you know, I, I, I always require my own head, the inventor of something, to at least foresee the misuse of his product. Right. It doesn't mean he can do a whole lot about it, and it doesn't mean that he can prevent it by any means. But, but you know, I don't think that Keith realized that doctors would take shortcuts right. the way they, they, they have, uh, you know, many and not all by any means. Um, but I don't think he foresaw that as thoughtfully as he put together this scale. I mean, it took him like five years. Mm. This wasn't just sort of whipped up over a weekend. Right. Uh, I don't think he realized what would happen to it in the real world. Right, right. Yeah, because uh, I know I've seen... Uh versions of this questionnaire where there's maybe 20, 25 questions total, and others have seen versions where there's only six of the questions on it. So, yeah, it has been whittled down a lot, but that's... Yeah, and and by the way, those are not Connor's scales. Right. Connor's scales are still sold and, and, you know, uh, and and viable and whatever, Mm -hmm. but they're not these these little things. So many, you know, they kind of became like Xerox or Kleenex, the Connor's scale almost went generic. Right. Now, any ADHD scale is thought of as a Connors scale, but it's not. It, it, Connors scale is a, is, a, is a brand of the product that is far more sophisticated than most of the other things out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are others. I mean, there's a Vanderbilt scale, and there's some other things. I'm not trying to put them down, but there are a lot of really bad ones. Right, right. Right. Now, this, um, you know, there are, you mentioned in the book, too, and there are others. I've heard this concern from other places as well. There are, there are people who find it a little alarming that the diagnosis process for ADHD seems to now only take a few minutes uh, once uh, whatever the version of the scale they're using. How do psychologists you refer to in your book justify such a quick diagnosis, or do, have they even addressed this issue? Well, I, I want to just clarify that, that the diagnostic process does not take a few minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, terrible, you know, reckless diagnoses mm-hmm. take a few minutes. Right. You know, crum- crummy diagnoses, thoughtless diagnoses do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the you know, state of the art, which is of course hard to hard to police in the real world, but nonetheless, uh, just for a benchmark, you know, the state of the art diagnosis would require 
several uh, clinical sessions between the clinician and the child, uh, the parent. The, the clinician would talk to at least one and hopefully two teachers, um, maybe, you know, hopefully one from the child's past, because you need to get a, a full clinical picture of the child's emotional and behavioral history. If you have a seven-year-old, say, or an eight-year-old, where a lot of these problems, you know, get suspected. Mm-hmm. First of all, the, the, the um, you know, the behaviors associated with ADHD, by definition, have to have been present and, and impairing or, or influencing, depending on what you want to look at, um, for at least six months, okay? So mm-hmm. this can't be an overnight thing. And so you need to talk to the teachers. Um, you want to find out, golly, was this child, um, you know, bullied when he was six and, and had, um, you, you know, negative feelings towards school or, or anxiety? Or, I mean, this, I'm not trying to, I, I, you know, identifying one or two of these things all, almost is, is foolish because it, it implies that those are the only ones. But there are lots of things that can induce ADHD like behaviors mm-hmm. in a child over time. And you need to really be careful to, to see if the child really does fit that diagnosis. Because if they don't, you know, the last thing you want to do is to tell a child that, you know, hey, you have this medical condition. Now, again, a seven- and eight-year-old, perhaps you don't do that. Um, but here's a pill. You need to take this in order to, to, to function the way we want you to. And, hey, sometimes that's necessary, mm-hmm. and that's just the way it is, folks. Um, but, you know, it changes a child's personal narrative mm-hmm. to, be, to be diagnosed with a, with a psychiatric condition. Uh, and you need to be really careful about it, and it's supposed to take a, a long, you know, a, a long time. Now, obviously, with insurance companies not reimbursing, not paying, uh, you know, as much as many doctors would like uh, for a diagnosis. I mean, if a if an insurance company will only reimburse a doctor let's just say $500 for making an original diagnosis of ADHD, Uh, you you know, does the doctor have the incentive to spend five sessions doing it Mm. Uh, or two? Uh, You know, I don't think there is any validity to that that excuse, okay? There's a big difference between an explanation and an excuse. And I think that any doctor who says, that, well, I just didn't have the time to make the proper diagnosis, I think should absolutely be brought up in front of the AMA. Right. Because you don't, you know, we, you know if you don't have the time, then don't do it. Okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you're going to do it, do it right. You know, we're not talking about screwing caps on toothpaste tubes here. We're talking about children's brains. Mm-hmm. And if, 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 you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't allow your mechanic to say, well, you know, I... I know you wanted me to check your brakes. I checked your brakes, um, and this is what I think it is. But I really didn't have time. I didn't like spend a lot of time with it because you know Ford doesn't reimburse me for it. Right. I mean, you wouldn't stand for that at all. You'd no. Be like, what, are you out of your mind? 
And, and you know what? If it's not good enough for your car, it's not good enough for your child. Exactly. And so I don't think any doctor, any reasonable and thoughtful doctor, would argue that it is appropriate to make a diagnosis in a child within one 40, 45-minute session. Mm-hmm. Okay? You haven't talked to a teacher. You haven't figured, I mean, there are lots of things. Okay? You haven't done your homework. You haven't done the job. I don't think any, I mean, I've had a couple of nutcases argue with me. <laughs> I, had a, I had a doctor in Connecticut say, oh, I do it in one session. You know, I always get it right, so what's the problem? It's like, <laughs> you're an idiot. You know, I mean, these are, these are dangerous people. Right. Um, and so, but the thing is, we live in the, look, we live in the real world. Okay, and doctors do feel, or you know, medical providers do feel some economic pressure. I mean, come on, I, I get it, but the thing is, is that is not reasonable. And I'm trying to shine a light on what does happen out there, mm-hmm. uh, and that contributes to the misdiagnosis of children. Notice, by the way, I did not say overdiagnosis. Right. I said I said misdiagnosis mm-hmm. because regardless of whether the numbers are high or too low. Obviously, they're too high at the moment. The idea is to identify the children who fit the construct and help them, and then to take the children who don't fit the construct, don't diagnose them, help them in what other ways are are best targeted. And um, the idea is to make the diagnosis correctly, not just to make it less. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's and um, one other thing too that you bring up in the book that uh, is driven home quite well because I think some people don't really understand the connection on the medications because the simple fact of the matter is most of the medications that treat ADHD are in fact a derivative of amphetamine and uh, or speed as it's commonly known and uh, you give examples in the book sometimes where it seems like as far as advertising and promotion by some of the big pharma companies uh, toward uh, getting amphetamines uh, out there uh, is there a serious problem with denial from big pharma in the medical industry uh, as far as you know whether ethics are being breached here or is is it just uh, something else going on? Well, I, I'd like to clarify a little bit. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, the word amphetamine, of course, is a, is a very serious word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it can be scary to some people. Right. And it, and it certainly evokes methamphetamine. Right. And, you know, speed freaks and, and things like that. And, and I think we want to be careful. You know, yes, these, the, the drugs are are either literally or, or functionally amphetamine, mm-hmm. okay? And, and, and it is, and they're Schedule II controlled substances. They are addictive. They, do have seri- they can have serious side effects, mm-hmm. and they need to be, you know, really respected. But, you know, I think that when they are described as speed or amphetamines, depending on, you know, the intonation of, of the speaker, right. it, it is a pejorative or, or it almost sort of puts, puts, puts horns on them. And I think that we need to be careful to separate amphetamine of, uh, uses, medic, medication use from recreational or, or abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and there are ways to keep those two separate. So I don't want the word amphetamine to scare Listeners, right? Yeah. Okay. I 
I mean, obviously, opioids have done wonderful things mm-hmm. for for people, but they backfired in a lot of ways too. And wouldn't it be nice if we could do a better job, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in using them appropriately? So anyway, getting back to, to pharma, I mean, I I don't obviously I've I've taken uh, the the medical establishment, medical providers, you know, to task. I, I've I've given them a pretty hard time mm-hmm. with how they have abdicated, you know, or how many of them, you know, uh, have abdicated their responsibility to do a better job here. I less so hold pharma responsible Hmm. because even with all their dirty tricks, and there are a lot of them, (laughs) and it's bad, Mm -hmm. okay, pharma does not prescribe. Pharma does not diagnose. Do they influence? Absolutely. Do they do so in absolutely unconscionable ways? Yes. Mm-hmm. As just about every major ADHD medication in the past 20 years been formally reprimanded by the uh, FDA for false and misleading advertising? Yes. But the thing is, is that that's what we have doctors for. Right. That's why... Some drugs are prescription only. That's why these drugs in particular are controlled substances. And that's why these drugs really particularly are Schedule II, which, are, which is the highest, most strict classification for anything with a medical use. Mm-hmm. The doctors and medical providers are the ones who are the gatekeepers to these medications. And so, you know, in a pure sense, of course, you want to be careful with exaggerating too much, I don't care how great a you know salesman pharma you know can be. Mm. I don't care how attractive pharma or you know it, it. The point is not how attractive pharma makes the pills to the general public. You still can't get them unless a doctor gives it to or you know gives you a prescription. It. Right. And so I really try to keep doctors and pharma separate. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, I just I just do try to make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one has a responsibility to the patient; the other has responsibility ultimately to its shareholders. And you know that's a pretty darned important distinction. Right, right. Now there are other ways to treat ADHD without medication, and one has been shown to have some real progress, and that's cognitive behavior therapy. But it uh, seems like a lot of things are against uh, CBT over uh, medication. Uh, why, uh, and you, you hit on this in the book. Why is that? Well, I mean, look, cognitive behavioral therapy, not unlike medication, by the way, can work in some cases, cannot work in some cases, can, you know, work kind of okay, and therefore, you know, kind of mask other problems. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the, the one thing it is that medication is not is expensive, mm-hmm. okay? It is very expensive to uh, give, to, to, to set up a, 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 you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, which, by the way, is more for the parents than for the children. Mm-hmm. It's to set up a more conducive learning environment in the home, ways to make sure or at least encourage the child to be less inattentive, to control him or herself better. It's a, 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 it's a, 
you know, a long and some might say tedious and, and certainly expensive process. And it is a lot easier to just give the kid a pill. I mean, who would argue otherwise? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people, it, it's not surprising that, 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 that the use of medication becomes more attractive. Now, one story I tell in the book, which I think is just horrifying, is that in the 1990s, the sort of ADHD world, having just come off a period of very high controversy about the use and the, and the, the rising uh, use, steeply rising use of Ritalin mm-hmm. and some horror stories associated with it, said, you know what, we're going to figure out once and for all, we're going to have the best trial in the history of chi- child psychiatry. Okay, the most thorough, the longest lasting, the best funded, the mm-hmm. most careful, driven by experts. I mean, absolute state of the art. And then they really did do that. Okay, mm-hmm. Keith Connors was in, in some ways the leader of that, of that effort, or sort of oversaw the effort. Well, they spent like four or five years. Make you know, giving very control. Or the study lasted that long, but then for 14 months they gave some children basically you know medication or cognitive behavioral therapy. It was far more complicated than that, but functionally that's what it sort of was. Mm-hmm. And when it you know when it came time to to deliver the results, the results did suggest okay that medication alone was slightly better than. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy alone, and maybe a little more than slightly, mm-hmm. okay, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but the thing is, is they were the, the, the information was presented to the world and to the news media that, you know, the only thing that works is medication, hmm. you know, and that cognitive behavioral therapy stinks. And, I mean, there was, there was so much more to that study. I mean, what we found out was that the, how medication is used in the real world when you're not doing state-of-the-art studies was actually pretty crummy. Yeah. It, it was awful <laughs> that, you know, that, that as America was using Ritalin with children was actually very ineffective. Uh, that message was not, trans, it was not uh, you know, transmitted at all. The, the benefits of medication were horribly exaggerated. Um, I'm not saying they were made up, but right. they were exaggerated. The success and, rate, no. And, and, and the success rate and the, and the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy was absolutely minimized to the point where people figured, you know, hey, medication is the best way to go from the start. And, and that's not necessarily true and certainly not true in all cases. And you need to be more, more thoughtful about it. And, of course, Big Pharma seized upon <laughs> how the best study in the history of child psychiatry said medication's the best mm-hmm. and that they've been using that in presentations literally for what is now almost 20 years mm. and there has not been a single study since then as far oh, as well, uh, I mean, there have been a bazillion studies right. since then, oh. but 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 none none that was you know that comprehensive right. and uh that well-funded and that driven by you know what people would consider to be the experts in uh, in the field Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people just said, "Okay, well, that was uh, that's the answer, right there." And Keith Connors himself, after looking at the data again a couple of years later, said, "You know, we 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 messed this up. Mm-hmm. We we didn't look at the data the right way. And when you look at the data, or perhaps in another way, uh, 
it actually shows that the, 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 the treatments of medication and CBT are actually very similarly effective. And so he's always regretted how that study was not necessarily conducted, but transmitted to the world. Right. Right. Well, that uh, that whole that's when he started began to have uh, misgivings about the entire process too, and this is what has uh, really driven your book is that his viewpoint on how ADHD is being dealt with now is, uh, from his perspective, seems to be completely incorrect as opposed to the way he had originally uh, uh, came up with the whole process. Is that correct? Well, I, I think. Well, I think that what he sees is the, the yes, the, the proper diagnoses and successful stories are out there, okay? And there are more out there uh, than were in his early days because we know more about ADHD. The public knows more about it. The medications are better. You don't have to take three a day and line up, you know, outside the, the nurse's office. I mean, the whole system has evolved to the point where the 5%, you know, who at least the APA itself says, you know, really do fit the construct, a lot of them really are being helped. And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's wonderful. Right. The problem is you've got millions of extra children being misdiagnosed and mismedicated. And it's that that Keith Connors now calls a national disaster of dangerous proportions. Wow. That the system he helped build and evangelize uh, has gotten so out of control uh, now, he doesn't want to abandon the construct of ADHD, I, and, and I certainly did not argue that in the book by any means. Mm-hmm. It's just that we have it. It's not going anywhere. Right. The medications do do a very nice job in a lot of cases. Can we please just do it more judiciously? Right. You know, it's like, it's, like, it's like we have this fire hose that we're just spraying around and just flailing around that we can't control, and we, we have to do a better job. It's, it's unconscionable that we don't. Mm-hmm. And Keith, um, you know, honestly, as a result of my series in the Times, came to have great misgivings about his career, and mm. and uh, you know, he didn't feel personally responsible for all of it by any means, right. uh, you know. But he wi- he was somebody who looked back and said, "Yikes! I wish I had foreseen what was going to happen and done what I could to, you know." To, to, to dissuade people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's kind of the Oppenheimer of, of the ADHD world. Right, right. Now, it's interesting, you know, because uh, one of the things about getting a diagnosis for ADHD, there's a lot of pressure on parents because of, uh, of course, pressures in school and all this academic stuff going on. And I have been told by parents who I know personally, as well as parents who listen to this podcast, that many times school officials, such as principals or superintendents, will tell them point blank, either get your kid medicated or they will be expelled. And of course, they're told this in private where there are no witnesses. And if the officials are confronted, they deny everything. But have you ever heard from parents uh, with similar stories since the book or the series came out? Not, not since the book. Um, you know, I mean, look, there's no question that those things, well, of course, there's a non-zero number of times where that happens, and it's terrible, and we, 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 we should do whatever we can to eliminate those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were, they were more common in the 80s and 90s um, when, you know, medication was, was or the use of medication was, was 
newer and parents needed to be convinced and, and someone, you know, would of course say coerced into, into doing it. Um, it became illegal in many states and it is now illegal in many states for a school official who is not a medical provider, licensed medical provider, mm. uh, to even utter the words medication or ADHD mm. uh, to, a, to a parent because of exactly what you're talking about, that it, it coerces the parent into, into providing a medical uh, service that, uh, for, for which the official is not licensed to recommend. Right. Um, now, of course, there are code words where a teacher can say, you know, you might want to get your child evaluated. I mean, teacher, some teachers I know uh, or have told me that it's just sort of the inside joke. Right. That, you know, that's what you say when you got to get the message across to the parent. Um, because some parents really do resist what the teacher knows in his or her heart is the right thing. Mm -hmm. I think teachers are very good people. Mm -hmm. I think that in general... They would never recommend anything that they knew would hurt the child or was not right for the child. Mm -hmm. I mean, never is a strong word, but just except for the, 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 the freak outliers that exist in every field and certainly, you know, medicine, too. Um, but, you know, teachers are under their own pressures. School systems are under their own pressures. I, I, I really do think that two things. One, I, I really have a hard time believing that a principal of a school would say exactly what you just said, which is you get your kid medicated or, um, you know, he's expelled. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's, it's just so beyond illegal. <laughs> um, I mean, it's against the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, it's just, it's just illegal all over the place. Mm -hmm. And um, now, of course, messages get delivered, you know, and, and I, I, I just, I put it this way, while of course I'd heard those stories, and a few parents would tell me, okay, during the years that I worked on the book, mm -hmm. literally not one has gotten in touch with me since the publication of the book and said, oh my God, I want to tell you my story. I went through what some of the parents in your book went through, mm. and can you help me, and things like that. I mean, when I did my series on concussions, I would get a couple of calls a day mm. from parents wanting advice on how to handle their child who was at least suspected of, if not diagnosed with, a, a concussion. Uh, to this day, I still get calls from National Football League players uh, asking for advice. On, on what to do and mm -hmm. how to handle various things. Um, with ADHD, it's with, with the medications, I get a lot of, I get a lot of calls, a lot of emails from people who abused the ADHD drugs mm -hmm. and, and need help to, uh, to get off them, uh, or want to speak out against abuse, but not, not parents claiming that principals said what you, what you said. I'm not denying that that kind of thing happens and that the parent who, who maybe told you that, you know, is lying. But I think we want to make sure not to exaggerate what goes on because right. that only polarizes things more. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you do you do sit back and think to yourself, is this is this real or is this just anecdotal? You know, well, I mean, but anecdotal 
doesn't mean it's untrue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's <laughs> That's let's, true. let's be careful. I mean, right. apocryphal, the, maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that that you know, that's part of the problem, is that we need to just sort of root things in the way they are and the way they have been, acknowledge it, and then see, like, hmm, what should we do with this information? Mm-hmm. Um, because everybody's going to get very defensive very quickly if we exaggerate. And, right. um, you know, I, I've, I've never, I have almost never used the word overdiagnosis, because it's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. It's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. And I choose my words very carefully, and I... I encourage others to stay very sober about all this. Right. Because uh, that's the only way people will put down their swords and uh, and listen to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's probably the most necessary part of it. Too often uh, there's a lot of uh, emotions running high when people talk uh, about what happens, and things can, can get blown out of proportion. You're right about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, parents get very sensitive when it comes to their children. Oh, yeah. I don't blame them. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're talking about your kid's brain. You you want to be careful about it. If you feel like somebody is not being careful about it or is pushing you into something you don't want to do, <laughs> you're going to get pretty exaggerated. Right. I just think that when we look at it as third parties, it's important to, to really find out what happened and how to address what really does happen out there. Right. Right. Now, it's 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 nice that you say repeatedly in the book that the medication does work for the kids who uh, have legitimate ADHD issues and it works fairly effectively compared to other things. But there have been problems, of course, with kids, especially in teenager and college years, using it as a study drug and faking their symptoms of ADHD. Um And you, you uh, reference a couple of uh, stories of some personal things that are going on with that. How has that uh, played out on the national scale? Has anyone compiled statistical evidence as far as how much abuse is going on with that? It's it's very difficult to quantify. Of course, it's always difficult to quantify, um, you know, illegal acts. Right. Uh, you, you know, now, there, there are statistical ways of doing it. I, I, I don't mean to suggest it's not possible. But um, a lot of the surveys that are done, are you know when you when you look under the hood, they don't do a very good job of assessing the true problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get into those details, but I was I'm somebody who can read a scientific study and read the statistical inner workings of things, and 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 say, hey, wait a minute, that's not going to work, or that's going to under under you know underestimate or overestimate or whatever it is. So. certainly know that it happens in college a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could you not? I mean, there is a lot of evidence of that. There have been a lot of studies that, that do a nice job. And, and even some of the um, sort of thought leaders in the industry who can't seem to come to grips with a lot of the other problems out there do recognize that, yeah, it's really bad. Like college, the college situation is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, the high schools, it's not you know, obviously rampant at every high school in the country, but kids under a ton of academic pressure are going to avail themselves, some of them are going to avail themselves of things that help them concentrate and stay up longer and study at least what they think is harder mm-hmm. and perhaps even, you know, more effectively. Uh, you know, a lot of those a lot of those benefits can be exaggerated, um, you know, and in some cases I'm sure it backfires uh, with kids. And certainly they can become addicted to it. But what drives me nuts 
is that a lot of people say, oh, no, it doesn't happen out there. I mean, you know, you hear stories occasionally, but it's it doesn't happen uh, in high schools. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there was a Family Ties episode in 1983 mm-hmm. about, you know, Alex P. Keaton, senior in high school, you know, abusing diet pills, which are amphetamines, of course, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to help study and how he got, like, he started getting really good grades and then he got completely cracked out on it and everything came crashing down. And, you know, of course it happens in high schools. And it's been happening in high schools for a long time, to varying degrees, and yet the ADHD establishment just wants that to be completely whitewashed. Hmm. And, I mean, in 2002, the, the acting head of the National Institute uh, of Mental, National Institutes of Mental Health uh, testified before Congress and said, you know, our experience is that that doesn't happen. Hmm. Meaning, meaning high school abuse. I mean, it's like, what are you out of your mind? Are you that? Are you that blind? And so it frustrates me again because how are we going to help the kids who are feeling that type of pressure and taking risks that they're taking if we're not even going to acknowledge that they're out there and out there to a far more significant degree than most people realize? Now, I'm not saying that half the kids in in you know top high schools or cracked out on Adderall, but I'll tell you something, there are a lot more than people think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. so we need to, we, don't, don't we care? <laughs> I think we care. Mm-hmm. Now, do we want to throw true ADHD kids under the bus and have them not have access to medication because, you know, some people abuse it? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Of course not. But that doesn't mean we ignore the other side, too. Right. I mean, I mean come on, it's not that hard. Right. I think if this was a yeah, I think if this was a problem of uh, some kind of an illegal drug being abused in school, there'd be a lot more attention paid to it. Well, perhaps. it is an illegal drug. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, a prescription <laughs> I mean, only context. drug. I know it's 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 interesting. You know, I'm guilty of this, obviously, by this statement. But it's interesting. Some people, you know, view uh, prescription drugs as being not necessarily illegal versus uh, cocaine or heroin or something off the street. It's just like, well, it, yeah, I mean, it'd be, it's like, hey, you know, a doctor gave it to me. It can't be bad. Right. Which is, of course, ridiculous. And, <laughs> and I mean, it's so ridiculous that it, it's like, does that really happen? And oh, my, it does. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, people know that cocaine is illegal. People know that marijuana is illegal or that heroin is illegal. Now, amphetamine, you know, owning amphetamine that is not prescribed to you is illegal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a federal crime, or, or at least certainly uh, distributing it is. And a lot of kids don't, don't realize that. And it would be nice if we did a better job in educating them that, hey, this is serious stuff. It can, you know, really mess you up if you misuse it, because the kids don't know what the proper dosages are. Kids don't know what possible side effects there are and how to heed them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're just sort of playing with fire. And so it's, it's our responsibility, it's the adult's responsibility to stand up and, and teach kids to just be far more wary of, of it than they are. Will that eliminate it? Of course not. Of course not. But wouldn't it be nice if, if we knocked down the number of abusers a couple of hundred thousand? Wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. I it's think, not that hard. Yeah. Yeah, just pay more attention. Now, um... 
what should parents do who are listening to this episode and they are being told that their child or their child children may have ADHD and they seem to be under a bit of pressure or feel like they're under pressure to put them on medications, but they're having a lot of misgivings. What would you what what kind of advice would you give them as far as uh, where where to look and uh, what to think about it? Well, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a medical provider, mm-hmm. okay, and I st- I always stop very short of giving medical advice. I think, though, what you need to do is you need, of course, to go to a licensed medical provider, and that would mean either, you know, a a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist, a psychologist, a neurologist, a uh, pediatrician, developmental pediatrician. You have to go to somebody who knows what he or she is doing, Mm -hmm. who has a lot of experience, and not only a lot of experience, but a lot of experience doing it thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. or at least some experience doing it thoughtfully. Sometimes the people who have a lot of experience are the ones who just have sort of a, a mill, <laughs> you know, an assembly line of kids coming in and getting diagnoses and leaving. Um, but you, you have to demand that the doctor or provider do the proper job mm-hmm. and do a thoughtful job and spend time with the parents, spend time with the child, talk to the teachers. Don't just send them, you know, the equivalent of a Connors scale or some flimsy little little rating, rating sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, really do your job to try to identify, is it ADHD or is it something else? Is it, you know, is, is the child have anxiety? Like we said before, sleep disorder. A lot of children don't sleep properly and that can make them daydreamy or, or whatever mm-hmm. in school the following day. Um, a proper diet, all a trauma. You know, if if if, if you know, a kid's parents just got divorced and dad's girlfriend is living down the hall with her own eighteen month year old, eighteen month old. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's going to create some behavioral, you know, challenges with the child. Right. And and you know, it doesn't mean they have a brain disorder. Now, I'm not again. Let me say, and I, I know I'm beating this over, you know, beating this to death. But again, a lot of kids will end up fitting the ADHD construct, and God bless them, and we have nice treatments for that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the kids are not going to, and we need to help them in the proper ways. The the treatment for anxiety is not amphetamine. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly the the treatment for a sleep disorder isn't amphetamine. Yeah. And, you know, let's let's just slow down. That's what I think that that is my primary advice, is to Slow down as much as everyone wants quick solutions. Slow down, demand the proper job from the doctor. If the doctor offers you a diagnosis and medication in one 40-minute session, run. (laughs) Do not accept it. Right. Because it is inherently irresponsible and potentially incorrect. Of course, any doctor can make an incorrect diagnosis even after 10 sessions. But the thing is, is they are just winging it. Mm Mm-hmm and you must demand more for your child's health. Right, right. Because it's a diagnosis that's going to have lifetime implications, as you say in the book, and it's something, you know, you can't just, uh, like you said, you can't just suddenly on the spur of the moment decide, well, let's put them on some medications and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if, if it's, you know, it's one thing if you're like, you know what, maybe the kid has a broken arm, maybe they don't, let's put them in a cast for three weeks. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's, that's, that's a false diagnosis, too. Right. You know, something that's re- reasonably serious, but that isn't a a chronic issue, okay? Mm-hmm. And B isn't a psychiatric one. And you know, it's really important that we we 
you know, are as accurate as possible about how we diagnose these things. The children deserve it, and we're not giving it to them right now mm-hmm. well enough. Right. Now, has Dr. Connors ever spoken about this, uh, this concept, and has he given any advice at all to parents, too, as far as what to watch out for, or, you know, or is it all pretty much the same as what you've been saying? Dr. Connors is not in the best of health. Ah. Uh, I'm not going to get into details. Right. Uh, but he has, in, in some interviews over the past year or so, certainly been very open about you know, his, his distaste for what the field became. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very, his reaction to my book was extraordinarily positive, mm-hmm. for, for which I'm quite flattered. Um, and you know, certainly to anyone who asks, we'll talk about how, awful he thinks things have become. Uh, he did deliver a talk at the National Institutes of Mental Health about that, the National Institutes of Health. So, but he does not do a lot of interviews, and he certainly doesn't talk to a lot of parents right. anymore. Right. Okay, so the book ADHD Nation is published by Simon & Schuster. It's available anywhere books are sold. You also have a website for the book. Yeah, well, right now we have a, we have a website called ADHDNationBook.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I haven't kept up with it as much as I should. That's because I have other professional responsibilities. <laughs> sure. But there are some good resources there, and anyone who wants to reach me can certainly do so. But again, I caution folks that I am not a doctor, mm-hmm. and none of this should be interpreted as medical advice. Right. I think what I can do is just encourage you to demand an appropriate diagnostic process as defined by the American Psychiatric Association itself. Right. Right. That's fantastic. Well, I I have to say the book was an amazing read. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, well-researched. And and like I said up front, I think it's extremely well-balanced. I think it's uh, you lay out a great case pro for the medication for the people that it works for and then lay out a great case of a lot more caution for the people that may not necessarily need it. Well, I appreciate that very much. All right. Well, thanks so much for being part of the podcast. My pleasure. Anytime. My thanks again to Alan Schwartz for talking to us about his book, ADHD Nation. You can find links to the book's website and profile pieces on Alan Schwartz on the page for this episode at specialparentsconfidential.com. A reminder to be sure to share this episode of Special Parents Confidential and any episode you've enjoyed on your favorite social media sites. We have sharing buttons on our website that make it easier for you to post. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.